This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. When I was about five years old, my family lost me at a water park. I had been playing in the kids' area and needing to use the washroom, left to do so. While I knew exactly where I was and where I was going, my parents were unaware. As parents concerned that their child was missing, they and the rest of our group immediately began scouring the entire water park for me. You know, luckily the ordeal didn't last too long as the park we were in wasn't particularly large. And eventually I stumbled into my mom once again. In this week's story, teller Jess Kadish shares a similar incident where she lost track of a loved one and in the scramble to find her, had to make some very serious decisions on how to protect them both. Recorded live in April 2021, Second Story is proud to present Where Is She? I'm sitting in front of the bike shop, stretching my legs. The sun is setting, bathing the trees with a West Michigan summer glow. I'm full of post-bike ride endorphins, heart pounding, muscles aching. But there's something else, too a little flutter of anxiety. Where is she? The shop owner calls from inside. She back yet, hun? It's eight, we're closing up. I crane my neck to see down the road. No sign of my wife Erica or her rental bike. Just tall, rustling stalks of Michigan corn. The anxiety flutters again. It's been 20 minutes. I wasn't that far ahead. I dig the car keys out of my pocket. I'm gonna go find her. Our wedding had been two days prior. We set our vows under a chuppah we'd built together, surrounded by the sweet sounds of live mariachi, her Mexican heritage and my Jewish roots blending beautifully. Afterward, we headed to Sagatuck, the gay vacation paradise of the Midwest, exhausted and giddy and ready to spend the first few days of married life doing a whole lot of glorious nothing. Except for the afternoon we decided to rent bikes and go to a winery about 10 miles outside of town. We could get in a good workout and get tipsy. After a few hours at the winery, veins and brains buzzing, we headed back. The sun was turning a deep, rich gold as it moved lower in the sky. The cornfields shimmered. Our shadows were long on the pavement. Jess, slow down, I'm short. But the bike shop closes soon. I can't go any faster, Jess. Erica was right. She was pushing herself as fast as she could, but we have very different paces. My natural stride can best be described as a Boston race walk. Erica's is more of a Midwestern mosey. We naturally fall together in a whole lot of ways but matching each other's pace takes real work, always has. The problem was, we had just spent a lot of money in a single day, adding $100 of fees for returning these bikes late, not in the cards or in the bank, and we both knew it. I really can't go any faster, Jess, you go ahead. Are you sure? I immediately felt relieved to have an excuse to speed up, then awful for feeling that way. Yeah? Go ahead, catch them before they close. I'll be right behind you. All right, see you in a minute. This makes total sense. Just because we're married doesn't mean we have to do exactly the same thing at exactly the same pace. We're still our own people, right? 
I blew her a kiss and kicked into high gear, speeding off until I couldn't see her behind me anymore. It's almost 8.30 now. The sun has dipped so low it's orange. The glow has become a burn. You know that endless cornfield syndrome you get driving in the Midwest when it's one identical stretch after another and you feel like you're losing your mind? I have driven back over almost every single stretch of road we were on, twice. She is nowhere. And now her phone is dead. My brain spirals into worst-case scenario mode. Did she fall and hurt herself? Did she get hit by a car? Did she get abducted? Oh my God, she got abducted. I turn down the last possible stretch of road I can think of. And then I see it. The panaderia, a little Mexican bakery convenience store combo we were used to seeing in Chicago, but not at all expecting out here. When we passed it the first time, she joked, hey, look, maybe I'm not the only Mexican in rural Michigan. Of course she's here now. She has to be. No, not like that. Like, hey, she's Mexican. This place is Mexican. She must be here. More like lost in this unfamiliar county, which is over 96% white. We Wikipedia'd it on the way up. This might have felt like a safe place to stop. I barge in, unable to contain my anticipation. Hi, did a short, dark-haired woman on a bike come in here? No. Sorry. The young white guy behind the counter seems bored. My stomach drops through the floor. Are you sure? Yeah, sorry. Back out in the parking lot, all out of ideas, I see a tiny house nestled in the cornfields across the road and a woman out front working in her garden. Maybe she knows something? I run over, trying to seem calm. Uh, excuse me, ma'am, did you happen to see a short, dark-haired woman biking this way? I don't mention that Erica is mixed race, her indigenous Mexican roots tangled and torn between the Spanish-European invasive species she doesn't identify with at all, and that while her skin isn't that much darker than mine, there's probably no one else around here who looks like her. This is, of course, important information that could be used to identify her, or to target her. I cannot articulate any of this in the moment. I just say, it's dark, getting dark, and I'm worried. The woman wipes the dirt from her hands. Her eyes are kind. Nah, hon, sorry, but give me your number so I can call you if I see her. Thank you so much. I try to reason with myself. See, people here are nice. Midwestern farmland kindness, just like my mom's family. Erica's probably sitting on someone's front step with a glass of lemonade, joking about what a jerk I am for leaving her in the dust and waiting for her phone to charge up so that she can call me to come get her. I turn to go back to the car. The woman stops me. Hey, hon. If you don't find her soon, I'd call the cops. Some shady shit happens around here at night. The sun has disappeared and the light is fading fast. The cornfields seem ominous now like they know something I don't. I run back to the car, slam the door, and start to sob. I fumble for my phone, blinking furiously to keep my tears from blurring my vision. It hadn't occurred to me to call the police. In Chicago, we don't do that. But something in that woman's tone terrified me, and the thought of any shady shit happening to my wife on our honeymoon because I sped ahead without her was unbearable. I dial 911 and put it on speaker. 
The dispatcher answers, steady calm. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, I, um, I can't find my friend, Erica. Lying about who she is makes this feel even worse, but I can't run the risk of someone being homophobic or even just curious or confused. I have to find her, now. Everything else can wait. We're from out of town. She's wearing black shorts. The bike is blue. All I can get out are these simple sentences. I feel helpless like a child. Okay, we'll let them know to look for her. Stay on the line. How could I have been so stupid? I think back to our ceremony and my cousin reading the Old Testament story of Ruth and Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I go. We'd squeezed each other's hands when she got to that part, literally two days ago, and already I'd ruined everything. I am not religious, but I start praying, bargaining. If she's okay, I'll never walk or bike too fast again. I'll never leave a dish in the sink again. I'll never leave her behind again, please. The cornfields seem endless, an ocean you could drown in. Almost 9 p.m., I'm on my fourth retracing of our steps, headlights guiding me now. And there, in the parking lot of a gas station, I see her, leaning on her bike, clearly exhausted. At the exact same moment, a cop and I both pull in and jump out of our cars. Hey there, are you Erica? He says to her. Yeah, she replies, her voice shaky. Clearly she's been crying too. That's when she sees me. For a split second, relief floods her face. Then she looks like she wants to kill me. I'm the friend who called, I hear myself say. She echoes me. Yeah, that's my friend. We're good at this. Years of practice. We slip right into the just friends bit with ease. I just want him to go away now. We're fine. Thank you, officer. He looks us over. You girls be careful now. Get home safe. We drive in silence. My tongue feels heavy with the weight of my mistake and the relief of her presence, alive and unharmed. My hands grip the steering wheel, too tight. The cornfields flying by the window feel less sinister now, but still with a sharp edge, the wind whispering, wake up, as it rustles the stalks. It feels like I've walked up to the edge of a cliff and seen how far we could fall. That's when we hear the sirens behind us. I take a deep breath and pull onto the shoulder. The officer approaches the window. Different guy. Evening, ladies. You know you're driving with a broken tail light? The tail light? In the pre-wedding chaos, we'd forgotten to get it fixed. Then he looks closer at us and it dawns on him. Oh, you're Erica. Then to me, as though we've known each other a long time, this is your friend we were out looking for. I look at us, at our forced smiles, concealing that gut twist that happens every time we lie about who we are, hiding for safety, even in marriage, and at the cop with his round, pale face and his gun at his waist, and then I think again, and I've had this thought before, but this is the first time I feel it in my body instead of just thinking it in my mind. 
What if black folks could temporarily hide their blackness when they encounter the police the same way I pretend to be friends with my wife? I know that passing for something you are not can be both a burden and a privilege. I have never been more in my bones aware of that privilege than I am in this moment. Well, you just make sure to get that fixed soon. I'll let it go this time. He grins, not at Erica, but at me, kindly, like we share a secret. And it's then that I realize the tension has melted out of my body, but is still radiating from hers. For me, the danger has passed, but for her, it has not. It will not. Thank you, officer. We will. I stammer, and he walks away. Erica lets out a deep breath like a balloon releasing its air. Thank God you were driving. I pull back onto the road and drive slowly, hazards flashing. We are silent again. The world directly ahead of us is bright in the headlights, everything beyond pitch dark. I hear her breathing beside me. I still don't know what to say, so I reach over and put a hand on her knee. She breaks the silence. Please don't ever let that happen again. I won't, I say. And that's all we say for a while. This story was curated by Amanda Delheimer with music and sound design by Mariana Green. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is... The Second... Second Story... Podcast.